Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flocks like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or, with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon was not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot, They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers.
He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks as always, Roger. It's quite a passage, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, as always, we pray that you would teach us. Please warn us if we need to be warned. Reassure us if we need to be reassured. And show us how to respond to your word. Amen. Today's passage starts a new section in the book of Isaiah, and it inaugurates a distinct change of emphasis in the subject matter of the book. Throughout the first 39 chapters, the events of Isaiah's time are never far from the surface. Oh, of course, he prophesies some things about the distant future. Indeed, we've looked at some of those prophecies in recent weeks. However, the focus is on the near term. Then, in chapter 40, with effect from chapter 40, uh, the focus shifts to the longer term. Nonetheless, as we look at the second half of the book, we need to remember the lessons of the events of Isaiah's time and his prophecies about those events. As I've said before, uh, Isaiah wasn't written so that people 2,700 years ago could learn from it. It's written because of its continuing relevance to us. In the first 39 chapters... Isaiah tells us about God's reaction to the behaviour of the people of his time and how God's going to respond to that behaviour. In fact, he says that the words reaction and response, or he implies that the words reaction and response are far too negative, far too passive 
because he says God is working out his purposes despite people rejecting him. In addition, the Bible, and especially the book of Isaiah, tells us about the fulfilment of those short-term prophecies. And those fulfilments give us examples of the way in which God acts. They demonstrate that Isaiah was a true prophet, and they act as guarantors of the fulfilment of the longer-term prophecies which dominate chapters 40 to 66. And that applies in particular to Isaiah's prophecies of judgment and salvation. And it's worth just thinking about that for a few minutes. Near the beginning of the book, Isaiah says that God is angry with the people of the northern kingdom of uh, of Israel, the northern Israelite kingdom, on account of their behavior. And he prophesies that God will destroy that kingdom. Then, in chapters 13 through to 23, he says similar things about a number of other places in his time. Before, in chapter 24, he generalizes and says that God is angry with all nations and that he will likewise bring judgment on all peoples. Now, we know that in 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdom did indeed be, was indeed destroyed. Sargon II of Assyria came and destroyed it. And the other short-term prophecies of Isaiah were also fulfilled. In particular, uh, Moab and Tyre that he prophesied would be destroyed were destroyed in the succeeding decade. And as we read about the fulfillment of those prophecies, uh, we realise the sheer awfulness of God's judgments. We can sometimes talk somewhat glibly about God punishing sin. But when we read about what he actually did in that respect, it really hits home. Furthermore, as we read about those judgments, the fulfillments of those short-term prophecies, we should realise that he will fulfil the longer-term prophecy of judgment for all those who reject him. So that's judgment. What about salvation? Well, Isaiah prophesied that although God would bring destruction to both the northern and indeed the southern uh, Israelite kingdoms, nonetheless, a remnant of people would be saved out of that destruction. And in particular, he said, that Jerusalem, the city, would not fall to the Assyrians. In addition, long term, he said that God would save people out of the general judgment that he had proclaimed. Take a look at chapter 25 in particular in relation to that. Now, it took rather longer for those prophecies to be put to the test. But in 701 BC, the Assyrians returned to the kingdom of Judah. Uh, In defiance of God's words, King Hezekiah relied on the Egyptians for salvation. Isaiah said that they would be useless, and they were. But Isaiah also said that nonetheless, God would save the city of Jerusalem, and he did. 
spectacularly. We can read about it in chapter 37 of the book of Isaiah. Now, I hope the lesson from that is clear. Just as God fulfilled the short-term prophecy of Isaiah of the temporal salvation of the people of Jerusalem, so he will fulfill the long-term prophecy of eternal salvation. And it's eternal salvation which is the central theme of chapters 40 to 66 of the book of Isaiah. Essentially, Isaiah expands upon what he has said previously in that respect. And specifically, he tells us about how God will bring that salvation through his anointed saviour, through someone who turns out to be one and the same as the divine king prophesied in chapters 7 to 11 of the book, through his Messiah, through Jesus, in other words. And in these chapters, we learn a huge amount that helps us to understand Jesus, to understand both his person and his mission. And chapter 40 is an introduction to all of that. So let's turn to it now. You'll find it on page uh, 724 of the Church Bibles, worth having it open in front of you. It begins with a dramatic command. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Uh, That's a command uh, issued to an unspecified addressee, but it forms uh, an indication of the theme of chapter 40. Indeed, you could say the theme of the whole of this section of the book. God wants his people to be comforted. So what are the grounds for that comfort? Well, certainly not that all will be well in the world. Indeed, Isaiah uh, has just issued a bombshell, or rather God has dropped a bombshell through Isaiah. Take a look back at chapter 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, that's the king, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the kings of Babylon. That prophecy was uttered a year or so before the Assyrians invaded. Isaiah said that they didn't need to fear the Assyrians. God would rescue uh, the people of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. But that wasn't the end of it, because the city would, in fact, fall to the Babylonians. And that happened just over a hundred years thereafter. So no, the comfort for the people of Isaiah's day was not that all would be well in the world. And that's not the comfort for us either today. So let's go back. What is the comfort? Well, well, in a phrase, it is that God is coming. Go to verse 3. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, 
and note this, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Then go on to verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. I suspect at least the first part of that is very familiar to a number of you. Isaiah doesn't actually say who the voice is. And perhaps more importantly, he doesn't say how or in what way the glory of the Lord will be revealed. But if we go to the New Testament, then we will find that all four gospel writers identify that voice with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the one preparing the way for the Lord, preparing the way for God to come in the person of his Messiah in the person of Jesus. And we will return to that point in a minute. But before we do so, there's another question that we ought to address. Why is the fact that God is coming comforting? You you may find that a surprising question to ask, or you may know what I'm going to say because I said it in a sermon quite recently. But think about it for a moment. God came to the northern kingdom of Israel and it wasn't comforting for them. He came in judgment. That kingdom was destroyed. Imagine for a moment that you had done something wrong, that you'd angered somebody and they'd said they were going to get their own back on you. But fortunately they're not in the country. And then one day, somebody comes to you with the news that they're coming back. They're coming to Blackheath. Would you regard that as good news? I doubt it. And you see, the Bible says exactly the same about our position before God. So why is the fact that God is coming good news? Isaiah gives two reasons. One negative, one positive. Go back to verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her her sins. That's yet another example of Isaiah using the so-called prophetic perfect. In order to stress the certainty of the fulfilment of his prophecy, he talks about something that's in the future as if it had already occurred, which, of course, from the viewpoint of God, it has. What he is saying is that the penalty for sins will be paid. Now, if you were somebody of Isaiah's time, you might assume the sins in question were the the sins that were going to lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. But Isaiah soon makes it clear that he's talking far more generally than that. Furthermore, we might assume, just reading this passage, that the penalty for sins is paid by the people of God. But again, Isaiah soon disabuses us of that notion. We'll be looking at that in much more detail next week when Eddie speaks from Isaiah chapter 53. But for the moment, we should just note that what Isaiah is saying is that we do not need to fear 
God because the penalty for sin is paid. Indeed, we learn that it is God's coming that will result in it being paid. That's the negative message. We don't need to fear God's coming. But but what's the positive side of it? Well, we thought about this a few weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah chapter 35. God is coming to put the world right. And specifically, he's coming to protect, to look after his people. Go back to verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. There's at least one sermon in those two verses. But for today, just note the the two points that are being made. God is powerful, but God is gentle. God comes with power, but he gathers lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. The Bible asserts that time and again. And does that remind you of something or someone? It should, because of course the New Testament tells us that this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Let's think, think about Jesus for a moment. He came with power. Think about his miracles. Think about his healings. Think about his nature miracles. Oh yes, he came with power. Think above all about his resurrection. But equally, he was gentle. He took care of the weak, the frail, the vulnerable. And he himself said, I am the true shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It's John chapter 10. Now Isaiah will have much more to say about that and we will be looking at it over the course of the next month or so. But in chapter 40, in the remainder of chapter 40, Isaiah focuses on one specific point, which is he wants to give us reassurance that the prophecies will be fulfilled. I'm sure that was needed for the people of his day, but it's also needed for us, because although Jesus has come and fulfilled a number of important prophecies, there remain others that are yet to be fulfilled. And we, of course, need reassurance that they will be fulfilled. Now, I've already given one big ground for reassurance which is the things that are said in chapters 1 to 39. We should draw great comfort from that. And, of course, we should also look at the life, death, and, above all, resurrection of Jesus and recognise that that, too, provides huge reassurance that these prophecies will be fulfilled. But Isaiah doesn't focus on those two things. Of course, he couldn't have focused on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was 700 years in the future. What he focuses on is a really big picture point. He says that we should receive comfort. We should be reassured that these prophecies will be fulfilled because of the nature and the character of God. And he makes four important points there. 
First of all, he tells us that God is faithful and keeps his promises. Um, Go to uh, to verse 6. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. The word of God, and that includes the promises of God, is part of the very fabric of reality. It cannot change. We should rely on the faithfulness of God. That's point one. Point two, God has the knowledge required to understand what is needed in the world and the wisdom to know how to achieve that. Go to verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? God doesn't need anyone to give knowledge to him. He doesn't need a counsellor. God is infinitely knowledgeable and infinitely wise. That's another ground for reassurance. Point three. God has the power to ensure that his purposes prevail. That point is in fact the one that Isaiah focuses on on in the whole of the second half of this chapter. In order to get a grasp of it, it's worth thinking about the very nature of God. As I've said before, we sometimes think of God as some kind of superman, but that's grossly inadequate. it's, It's inadequate to the point of falseness. And furthermore, we mustn't form some kind of physical or mental image of God. That itself is wholly misleading. Verse 18, with whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, the metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Nothing in creation is an adequate representation of God because God's the creator. Verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look at the heavens. Who created these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God is infinitely powerful. Beside him, all other power is like nothing. Worldly power is like nothing. The power of the nations is like nothing. Verse 15. 
Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Moving on to 17. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Assyria? Egypt? Babylon? The United States? China? Nothing. Besides God, these nations are as nothing. And what about so-called spiritual powers that terrify some people? As nothing. Nothing whatsoever. God is infinitely powerful and carries his will into effect. And then there's a fourth point. God uses his knowledge, wisdom and power for our benefit. Indeed, he makes it available to us. Verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. That's what we've just been saying. But here's the point. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I don't know about you, but... When I read Isaiah chapter 40, I end up somewhat overawed by it. Its scope is just vast, and it takes a long time sitting down and reflecting on it for it to seep in. And yet, its basic message is simple. God wants us to be comforted because He is coming. Indeed, he has come in Jesus and he will come again in like manner. And that's good news because the penalty for sin has been paid and because God comes to protect and shepherd his people. And why can we be sure of that? What reassurance is there? Well, God is faithful. God is infinitely knowledgeable and infinitely full of wisdom. God is infinitely powerful. And God makes his knowledge, his wisdom and his power available to to us. He uses it for our benefit. All of which is demonstrated by his past acts. So how should we respond to that? I suspect many of you will think the answer is obvious. We should do what it says at the beginning. We should be comforted. And, and yes, we should. At least we should if. Did you notice that both the first and the last verses contain what's effectively an implicit condition to drawing comfort? Go back to verse 1. 
Comfort, comfort all people, says your God. Doesn't say that, does it? It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And what about verse 31, the last verse? But all people will renew their strength. It doesn't say that either. It says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. So how should we respond? Well, the first thing is to ask ourselves, are we part of God's people? Uh, Do we hope in the Lord? If we're not sure about that, the first thing to do is to, to act, to make sure we do place our hope in the Lord, that we become part of God's people. And if you're in that position today, do come and have a chat afterwards. There are plenty of us around, because that's absolutely crucial. There's no comfort here outside placing our hope in the Lord. But if you know you are part of God's people, if you know you have placed your hope in the Lord, then I recommend you go home and sometime this afternoon or perhaps during the week, read chapter 40 and draw comfort from it. Amen.